This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 1, Episode 23, The Highway Murders, Part 2. Welcome to The Highway Murders, Part 2. On this episode, we will go over historical developments in solving some of these cases, new investigations, suspects, and theories. We will also cover government scandals, racism, and the most recent developments in missing persons, abductions, and murders along the highways in Western Canada. Since 1981, and with the help of an out-of-a-box thinker, RCMP Sergeant Mike Eastman, police in several communities have gotten together to compare notes and to determine if they were looking for a single suspect, multiple suspects, or a group of suspects all working together. With increased missing persons, abductions, and murders throughout the years, the police developed Project E-Pana in 2005. Project E-Pana focuses on the unsolved murders and disappearances of young women along Highway 16, the infamous highway known as the Highway of Tears. E-Pana sought to discover if there was a single serial killer at work or a multitude of killers operating along the highway. The unit investigated nine cases in 2006, but by 2007 its caseload had doubled to 18. The victims involved with the EPAN investigation followed the criteria of being female, participating in a high-risk lifestyle, known to hitchhike, and were last seen or their bodies were discovered within a mile from Highway 16, Highway 97, and Highway 5. In 2009, EPANA received over $5 million in annual funding, but has since dramatically declined due to budget cutbacks, receiving only $806,000 for 2013 and 2014. In 2013, Craig Collins, the RCMP Deputy Commissioner, warned that further budget reductions from the provincial government would greatly affect the Highway of Tears investigations. A 2014 Freedom of Information request stated that the task force had dropped from 70 officers to just 12 officers over the past few years, and although it is technically still investigating, it is unlikely that all the murders and disappearances will be solved. EPANA had success in solving a few of the cold cases. If you recall, we spoke about 16-year-old Colleen McMillan in episode 1. Here is a quick recap concerning Colleen's disappearance and murder. In the summer of 1974, Colleen McMillan, a pretty strawberry blonde teenager, left her Lac Lahash home to hitchhike just a few kilometers from her friend's house. Even though hitchhiking was a common practice in the 1970s, Colleen never made it to her destination. Her body was found one month later beside a logging road south of 100 Mile House. Police suspected a drug addict who confessed to the murder and then recounted before committing suicide. Re-examining the case, authorities believe the drug addict was not involved in the crime whatsoever. And even though the case was cold, the RCMP at the time did an amazing job in securing evidence. When her body was found back in 1974, police also found her blouse, and on that blouse was DNA. Of course, there was no DNA testing in 1974, but the RCMP preserved that blouse in a careful way. As the decades passed and DNA became a key tool of police work, investigators took a second look at that sample. In 2007, they entered it in various databases of known criminals. No concrete hits came back, 
but police were told that the shirt contained the DNA of an unknown male. Whoever he was, he was likely Colleen's killer. As DNA technology advanced, scientists were able to enhance smaller and older samples, and this year, the forensic investigators assigned to the RCMP learned of a new procedure. That sample from Colleen's blouse was enhanced and sent to Interpol, whose database encompasses criminals from all over the world, including the United States. In May of 2007, Interpol informed the RCMP that it had received a positive hit from the sample on Colleen's blouse. It belonged to an American roofer named Bobby Jack Fowler, who had tried to kidnap and kill a woman back in 1995. The woman escaped by jumping naked out of a second story window with a rope around her foot. Fowler was arrested at the scene. It was the oldest hit on a DNA sample in Interpol history. Now, this violent, roving roofer was being linked to Colleen McMillan, a 16-year-old strawberry blonde from another country. The RCMP flew to Oregon, where Fowler had a criminal record for kidnapping and attempted murder, and they spoke to American investigators. More investigation led the Canadian police to conclude that Fowler, a twice-divorced father of four with a violent past, was the person who killed Colleen McMillan. He led a nomadic lifestyle, and he was in BC and Alberta several times in the early 1970s. Investigators concluded that he'd also likely killed two other young women on the official Highway of Tears list, Pamela Darlington and Gail Weiss, both 19 years old. They were both murdered in 1973, one year before Colleen McMillan. RCMP state that although DNA evidence is not available, they believe circumstances link Fowler to the two murdered females. With this new information provided by the RCMP, Oregon investigator Ron Benson took a fresh look at Fowler, suspected of murdering seven people in Oregon and others across the United States. Investigators believe he may have killed up to 20 people in the U.S. and Canada, and some have compared him to the infamous serial killer Ted Bundy. But unlike Bundy, who was executed by electric chair at Florida State Prison, Bobby Jack Fowler would never pay for these new crimes. He died a year before the RCMP took note of him and escaped justice by succumbing to lung cancer in 2006. In 2014, investigations by EPANA and the BC Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit brought two counts of murder charges against Gary Handlin for the death of 12-year-old Monica Jack in 1978 and Catherine Mary Herbert, aged 11, in 1975. Monica Jack was last seen riding her bike on May 6, 1978, near Nicola Lake. Her body was found in June 95, north of Merritt. Catherine Mary Herbert disappeared in 1975 while heading to her Abbotsford home. A few months later, her body was found on Metsqui First Nations property. RCMP said Handlin was suspected in the killings shortly after each happened, but police didn't have enough evidence to charge him at the time. They believe they have enough evidence to bring him to justice, and Handlin is now awaiting trial in BC's Supreme Court. His previous criminal history includes rape, and assault convictions. Could Handlin be responsible for any of the other victims we have mentioned in part one of this podcast? In 2014, RCMP arrested what is Canada's youngest serial killer, 
Cody Legabakov, aged 24 at the time, in connection to murders in northern BC. Cody was raised in Fort St. James in rural BC. He has been described by friends and family members as a popular young man who competed in ice hockey and showed no tendencies for violence. Though Cody had a minor criminal record, he was not, quote, on the radar of local police. After graduating Fort St. James Secondary School, Cody lived briefly in Lethbridge, Alberta, before moving to Prince George in northern BC near the Highway of Tears. There, he shared an apartment with three close female friends and worked as a mechanic at a Ford dealership. On November 27, 2010, at approximately 9.45 p.m., a rookie Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer observed Cody pull his truck onto British Columbia Highway 27 from a remote logging road. The pickup truck was speeding erratically, and on a hunch, the officer decided to pull over the vehicle for a routine traffic stop. It was odd and even suspicious that someone would be on that road that late in frigid November. So he suspected Cody of poaching in the backwoods and signaled for him to pull over. The officer was joined by a second RCMP officer. Upon approaching the vehicle, the officers say they noticed Cody had blood smears on his face and chin, blood on his legs, and a pool of blood on the driver's mat. The officers claimed that upon searching the pickup truck, they discovered a multi-tool and wrench covered in blood, as well as a child's backpack and a wallet containing a children's hospital card bearing the name Lauren Leslie. When questioned about the blood on him, Cody said he was poaching and had clubbed a deer to death because, quote, I'm a redneck and that's what we do for fun. But he could not explain why there was no deer carcass in his truck. The officers arrested Cody under the Canada Wildlife Act and called for a conservation officer with animal tracking skills. The warden retraced the tire tracks of Cody's vehicle back up the road and in the freshly fallen snow found footprints leading not to a deer carcass, but to Lauren Don Leslie's remains. After Cody's arrest in connection with Leslie's death, he was linked by DNA to the murders of three other females. First was Jill Stacy Stokoenko, a 35-year-old mother of five, last seen on October 9, 2009. She was found dead four days later in a gravel pit on the outskirts of Prince George, BC. Second was Natasha Lynn Montgomery, 23, last seen August 31st, 2010. Her body has never been found, but her DNA was later found in samples taken in Cody's apartment. Third was Cynthia Frances Mass, 35, last seen September 10, 2010. Her body was found in a Prince George Park a month later. Mass died of blunt force trauma to the head and penetrating wounds. She had a hole in her shoulder blade, a broken jaw and cheekbone, and injuries to her neck consistent with someone stomping on it. In addition to the charge of murder of these three women, he was also charged with the murder of Lauren Leslie, 15. Leslie is something of an exception as she was far younger than the other victims and allegedly met Cody online at a website called Nexopia. Leslie was legally blind, having one completely blind eye and only 50% vision in the other. Cody pleaded not guilty to all four counts of murder, 
The judge and 12 jurors heard testimony from 93 Crown witnesses and also the defendant. Cody testified during the trial that he was, quote, involved in three of the deaths, but claimed that he did not actually commit the killings. He alleged that a drug dealer and two accomplices, whom he would only name as X, Y, and Z, were the actual murderers. Cody was convicted on four counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years. In February 2015, Cody filed an appeal due to decisions against change of venue and defendant's legal representation. In September 2016, all three judges in the BC Court of Appeals case endorsed the original judge's decision. Victory for justice, but there is still a long way to go. Critics argue that the lack of results arising from investigations is the direct result of systemic racism. This was also believed to be an issue in the case of Vancouver's missing woman and the Robert Picton murders. Often overlooked in reports on the Highway of Tears is the fact that over half of the missing women are First Nations. Activists argue that media coverage of these cases has been limited, claiming that media assign a lesser value to Aboriginal women. Furthermore, despite the fact that these disappearances date back as far as 1969, it was not until 2005 that Project ePano was launched, investigating similarities between the cases. In addition, the individual case which has received the most media and police attention thus far is the Nicole Hoare case, a Caucasian woman who disappeared in 2002. Hers was the first the Highway of Tears cases to be covered in the Globe and Mail, the Vancouver Sun, and the Edmonton Journal. Gladys Raddick, a native activist and aunt of victim Tamara Chipman, says, quote, that if it weren't for Hoare, the police would have invested less effort in investigating cases and the media would have done little, if anything, to inform the public about the tragedies along these roads. The Native Women's Association of Canada has documented nearly 600 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada, mostly in the past three decades. The group estimates the actual number is much, much higher. Amnesty International has slammed Canada for failing to act on missing and murdered women, calling it a national human rights tragedy. Communities have long complained that the RCMP investigators didn't take the cases seriously, blaming systemic racism. In September of 2005, communities took part in Take Back the Highway, walking it with photos of their loved ones, signs representing how many have disappeared along these roads. The BC government came under heavy scrutiny, claiming the highway was safe and that improved policing and transportation, such as bus routes, were not wanted by communities. However, under freedom of information requests, communities did, in fact, want access to better transportation so that hitchhiking would be obsolete. On October 22, 2015, Elizabeth Denham, the Information and Privacy Commissioner of British Columbia, published a 65-page report outlining how BC government officials had triple-deleted emails relating to the Highway of Tears. By deleting these files, Denham states the government had breached the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. 
Denham became aware of the scandal in May 2015 after she received a letter from whistleblower Tim Duncan, the former executive assistant to Transportation Minister Todd Stone. Duncan claimed that he was responding to a Freedom of Information application. Ministerial assistant George Gretz ordered for Duncan to research his records for any files pertaining to the Highway of Tears and Missing Women. Once the files were located, Duncan testified that Gretz ordered them to be deleted. When Duncan hesitated, Gretz allegedly took the keyboard and triple-deleted all of the emails related to the Highway of Tears. According to Denham, Gretz originally denied this claim, but later admitted to the triple deletion during a second police interview. Denham states that Gretz, who resigned from his job in October 2015, would have then lied under oath. A year earlier, in the summer of 2014, a team from the Transportation Ministry toured Highway 16 and conducted numerous meetings with Aboriginal leaders and communities. The significance of this project was to produce safer travel solutions for women living along Highway 16, many of whom turned to hitchhiking as a way of transportation. In November 2014, the NDP made the Freedom of Information request seeking all government files pertaining to missing women, the Highway of Tears, and meetings arranged by the Ministry, the report Duncan would later respond to. Despite a two-month tour and multiple meetings, the BC government claimed the Freedom of Information request produced no files relating to the Highway of Tears. According to Denham's report, these records did exist until government officials destroyed them in order to quote, skirt freedom of information laws. Denham called upon the RCMP to further investigate the triple deletion of government files. In November 2015, Vancouver lawyer Mark Jett was appointed as special prosecutor within the RCMP investigation. Jett acted as the RCMP's independent legal advisor, as well as administer an independent assessment of all the evidence. Charges were brought against only one individual, Mr. Gretz, who deleted the emails. He pled guilty and was given a slap on the wrist, a $2,500 fine. The judge said she was sentencing Gretz for his dishonesty in speaking to police, not for triple deleting. Incredible. Simply incredible. The government covers up, and the judicial system does not seem to mind. Under heavy pressure from communities, Aboriginal leaders and activists, and negative media publicity, the provincial government finally announced that as the result of collaboration across local communities, a bus service would become available along Highway 16. The project would be joint funded by the federal government and the government of British Columbia. The bus service was announced in June 2016, and in 2017, a 30-kilometer limited bus route was announced. Remember, Highway 16 is over 1,000 kilometers long, making this first route almost non-existent. It's just 30 kilometers. And more troubling now is Greyhound Canada just said it wants to discontinue all routes in northern BC by 2018. Officially, the Highway of Tears victim list ends in 2011. But even today, we hear reports of missing persons, abductions, and murder along this highway. So who was responsible for the murders starting in 1969 up until 2011? 
former Vancouver police profiler Kim Rosmo and criminal justice professor at the Texas State University believes the serial killer is responsible for many of the deaths along Highway 16 in the past two decades. He does not believe, however, that Bobby Jack Fowler, the man RCMP tracked down with DNA, is the main suspect. Rosmo, who was among the first to predict a serial killer was preying on women from Vancouver's downtown east side, said it is reasonable that Fowler could be responsible for the three deaths in the 1970s, which all happened close to Kamloops. But, in his opinion, it doesn't make sense that Fowler would have also killed nine young women who vanished along Highway 16 in northern BC between 1989 and 2006. Quote, It is extremely unlikely, almost to the point of impossibility given the time frame and when he was arrested, Rosmo says. Rosmo, who has a PhD and created the Geographic Profiling Unit at the Vancouver Police Department, said timing and proximity are key when determining whether one suspect is responsible for multiple crimes. It made sense, for example, to conclude there was a serial killer preying on sex trade workers in the downtown east side because they were disappearing from the same neighborhood over a set period of time from 95 to 2001. Rosmo analyzed the 18 highway cases being investigated by the RCMP. The first nine victims on the list, including the woman Fowler had been linked to, disappeared from widely separated places in the province between 69 to 83. The last nine women, however, all vanished between 89 to 2006 along Highway 16 between Prince Rupert and Prince George, a lonely stretch of road dubbed the Highway of Tears. Rosmo believes a serial killer is responsible for some, if not all, of these cases. However, he argues it cannot be Fowler, who was arrested in Oregon for a serious crime in 95, and therefore was likely in jail when the last four women on the list were killed. EPANA investigators say they also don't believe one person murdered all 18 victims on their list, but are open to the possibility that a serial killer was responsible for some of the cases. A former Kamloops detective, Ken Leibel, investigated the Colleen Ray McMillan murder in the 1970s, and he remembers, somebody came to the detachment and said a man had tried to abduct them and they took down the license plate. Police ran the plate and saw that the man, Jerry Baker, had a history of sex offenses, had done time in prison, and had returned to Williams Lake around the same time McMillan was killed. The teenager was last seen hitchhiking to a girlfriend's house about six kilometers away in Lac La Hache. At the time, Leibel felt the man could have been responsible for the other murders as well. His name had surfaced in several other investigations, including the murders of Pamela Darlington in Kamloops and Gail Ann West in Clearwater. He tried questioning Baker about McMillan's murder but, quote, he was extremely nervous and he denied it. Fifteen years later, Baker became the prime suspect for the murder of a young girl named Norma Tashutes, age 17, whose body was found on July 10, 1989, in a wooded area near Hundred Mile House. She had been shot. She was last seen about a month earlier being dropped off near Hundred Mile House while hitchhiking to Vancouver. A local resident suggested Baker was responsible for the Tashutes murder. 
Baker, who had reported his Ruger handgun stolen to police the day after Tashutes was last seen, was interviewed and denied being involved. The investigation eventually dead-ended. But it was reopened in 2001 after a complete file review and a decision to try an undercover operation. Baker eventually confessed to murdering Tashutes to an undercover officer and confided where he had disposed of the murder weapon the gun he had reported missing, which he recovered later. He was convicted in 2003 of the murder. Quote, is he responsible for four or five murders or just one? I don't know, Libel said of Baker. He said police considered the possibility of a serial killer being involved in the growing number of unsolved murders that occurred along the highways in BC's interior. Bible believes that if two guys were involved, one could be driving and one could be on the lookout and abducting. Quote, you can cover a lot of ground in one day. We know through DNA that Colleen McMillan's murder was at the hands of Bobby Fowler and that police suspected that Fowler was also responsible for at least three other murders in BC. Former Detective Libel makes an interesting point. Did Bobby Fowler and Baker know each other? Did they work together? Did they abduct, rape, and murder together? Retired Mountie Fred Bud Murrock, who was a staff sergeant when he headed the investigations into the murders of Colleen McMillan and Pamela Darlington in the early 70s, admitted that even though he retired in 1977, he still thinks about the cases. They never leave you, he says. You dream about them, especially the ones you don't solve. He always thought a serial killer could have been responsible for several highway murders, as they were called. At one time, he suspects U.S. serial killer Ted Bundy was responsible for Darlington's murder. The nude body of the 19-year-old was found at the edge of the Thompson River in 73 with bite marks on her body, a Bundy trademark in some U.S. killings. But investigators concluded that although Bundy had been known to visit Canada, there was no evidence he was in the area at the time. Bundy, a former Seattle resident, was caught and sentenced to death in Florida for three murders. Just before Bundy was executed in 89, he confessed to committing more than 20 murders, but investigators felt he was responsible for a lot more. Bonerick also compares notes with Seattle detectives investigating the serial murder case known as the Green River Killer. The man eventually caught Gary Ridgway pleaded guilty in 2003 to killing 48 women. Now 78, Bonerick recently watched a TV documentary about a man named Wayne Clifford Bowden, and he felt he might be a suspect. Bowden was a traveling salesman who killed three women in Montreal before moving to Calgary, where he killed again and got caught in 1972. He was known as the Vampire Killer because he left bite marks on all his victims, similar to Darlington. The TV documentary detailed how Bowden traveled through Kamloops to Vancouver. Bowden, however, was arrested in Calgary in 1972, convicted of four murders, and died in prison in 2006. On November 16, 2006, in Fort St. John, B.C., Paul Russell Delano Felkner, age 60, was charged with second-degree murder in the death of Cindy Burke, age 21, around mid-July 1990. Her body was discovered about a week later in a provincial park off of Highway 97. 
Cindy was traveling, hitchhiking, from Prophet River north of Fort St. John, and it was believed she was on her way to Saskatchewan. Surrey Private Investigator Ray Michalko has been investigating the Highway of Tears cases on his own since 2006. I was watching the news about the second anniversary of Tamara Chipman going missing in 2005, and I complained to my wife that nobody seems to be doing anything, and she said, well, you're a PI, won't, why don't you do something, he recalled. He started investigating the initial eight mysterious disappearances and murders along Highway 16. He estimates he spends about 40 hours a month pursuing tips he receives by email or on his toll-free tip line, which he publicizes using letters and posters, including some posted to federal prisons and provincial jails in BC. He said when he receives a paying job in the north, he stays a few days longer to do a follow-up on the Highway of Tears tips. Michalko, 62, a former North Vancouver Mountie, said there is no shortage of theories and rumors about who is behind the murders and disappearances. Some say it's a cop or a long-haul trucker preying on young girls walking along the highway alone, he said. I've seen no evidence of that. There's a million places to pull off and indeed go undetected, but not for a tractor trailer. He also has been told that the girls were abducted and used in some sort of sex trafficking ring. Again, he discounts that theory because he has received no solid tips of it happening. He initially believes there was a serial killer cruising the highway, but I don't believe that now, he says. But until you catch somebody, you never know. Despite, quote, one name that keeps popping up, he wouldn't reveal the man's name other than to say he is linked to a community close to Prince George. There's little to link the unsolved cases together other than the fact that the girls were young were last seen on the highway, and many of them hitchhiking. He now believes the murders were likely crimes of opportunity committed by various men living in the local communities where the tragedies took place or passing through those communities. Quote, that's the scary thing than having a serial killer. Adding it means more than a dozen men got away with murder and are still walking free. Wayne Clary, an RCMP sergeant who was once head of the Highway of Tears task force, said the most frightening thing for him was how many men seemed to be hunters of women. This is a direct quote. We've uncovered men who drive vans with the door handles removed from the inside, duct tape, plastic wrist restraints, and trap doors. It's incredible to me how many men are capable of doing this, end quote. So let that sink in for a moment. There's men driving in vans with door handles removed from the inside. They have duct tape, plastic wrist restraints, and trap doors. And they're just cruising the highway looking for victims. Please join us next time for part three.